Hi, I'm David Wilson, the editor of the United Church Observer magazine. You're listening to an Observer podcast, which is produced by the magazine's editorial department. We're pleased to bring you some of the best writing and interviews from the magazine, as well as insights from our contributors in audio form. Over the next while, we'll hear from writers Alana Mitchell and Erica Lenti. First, I'd like to share one of my recent columns with you. Meetings of the United Church's General Council are a bit like life on a cruise ship. The more the outside world recedes from view, the more the meeting becomes a reality unto itself, with its own customs, codes, and ranking systems. It didn't take long for the cruise ship mentality to take hold of the 42nd General Council meeting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, this past August. Liberal Protestant churches are forever tinkering with how they're organized and how they operate, as if holiness somehow resides in structure and process. At the outset of the Cornerbrook General Council, commissioners declared, in all seriousness, that agreeing on a new system of governance for the United Church would trump just about everything else. And so it did. Commissioners debated the finer points of church structure with a passion and urgency that suggested the very soul of the United Church was at stake. As the days passed, the meetings grew more and more inward-looking, a gravitational pull of the governance work so intense that it seemed to suck everything into its orbit. But on day five, the meeting encountered a force it could not overpower. That force was history. History arrived in the person of Marie Wilson, one of three commissioners on the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which wrapped up its formal work last spring. A lifelong member of the United Church, Wilson was taking part in a session on the legacy of residential schools. I interviewed her in Ottawa last winter. Back then, she was still on the Truth and Reconciliation payroll, and she seemed tired and guarded. In Cornerbrook, she looked and sounded refreshed, and her message was uncompromising. The United Church of Canada will forever own its part in the sin of residential schools and may never be clear of the debt it owes to Canada's Indigenous peoples. Nor will any of the other Canadian churches that participated in the residential school system. The meeting hall grew silent as Wilson declared that the very idea of the United Church is now tied to its residential school past. Referring to the 2007 residential school settlement, she said, Wherever it says parties to the agreement, that's you. Wherever it says the churches, that's you. Wherever it says faith communities, that's you. Wilson's speech was calculated to challenge any temptation to view residential schools as an abstraction. She compared her own Dene grandchildren and the choices they enjoy today to the other images she perpetually sees in her head. Countless boys and girls huddled in their rows of single beds, far from home, bedsheets sometimes tied around themselves in a desperate effort at scant protection as they pretended to sleep. These children grew up with numbers instead of names, without the comfort, kinship, or security of nearby brothers or sisters, parents or grandparents. They were alone, often hungry, often sick, and far too often afraid, abused, ashamed, abandoned, and angry. Wilson said that as a non-Aboriginal person raised in the United Church, she has at times felt the entire weight of the residential school system on her shoulders. 
She said she felt she bore the face of the perpetrator and experienced deep shame at the superior presumptions of transplanted government and the superimposed religion of her ancestors. Over the course of the week in Cornerbrook, commissioners voted to recommit the church to healing and reconciliation efforts, to press for a national inquiry into missing and murdered Aboriginal women, and to protect funding for its Aboriginal ministries. But Wilson made it clear that measures such as these were beginning, not the end. She said, the residential school story is nowhere close to being over. If there was one lesson from the United Church's 42nd General Council, it was this. Governance is how you do things, but history is who you are. My brother-in-law, uh, John Patterson, who is a United Church minister, actually, was diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer a few, you know, several years ago, and had that dealt with, you know, medically, just all the traditional medical treatments that one would expect. He was quite, um, uh, you know, he didn't he didn't question that it should be a traditional medical treatment for that for that illness. And then a couple of years later, he was diagnosed with um, malignant. Uh, melanoma, which and 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 essentially, the doctors told him that he had a 60% chance of being alive in, in five years. So that was in 2010, and they had nothing to offer him at all except monitoring. They said, you know, you can come back and have scans done every few years, and if and when you get another huge tumor that is so painful you can't stand it, then we will we will operate, and that's that's all they could offer him. So there there was no chemo, there was no you know no treatment of any kind that they could. They could give him and so he you know he's a man of action he said well you know what can i do for myself what what could i do that would make a difference and the doctors in canada said nothing absolutely nothing will make a difference not diet not exercise not attitude i mean absolutely nothing and he just couldn't accept that and so he started looking at alternative treatments and ended on um and consulted quite widely, ended up doing some intravenous vitamin C therapy and a bunch of other types of therapies and getting his blood tested every five weeks for the presence of what are known as circulating tumor cells. And he sends that blood off to, to Germany and gets it tested every five weeks. And, and then he asked me to look at all this stuff and say, you know, what is the, what does the science say about all this stuff? And I just became immersed in the science of it, the medicine of it, and then the cultural meaning. You're listening to award-winning Canadian journalist and author, Alana Mitchell. Her book, Seasick, won the 2010 Grantham Prize for science writing and inspired her acclaimed one-person play of the same name. Alana also won a Gold National Magazine Award for a 2013 Observer story about a team of scientists trying to save a small Argentine water bird from extinction. In the same year, she wrote another Observer piece about how cancer has mutated into a modern symbol of personal and collective sin. That article inspired her new book, Malignant Metaphor, Finding the Hidden Meaning of Cancer. Mitchell spoke to the Observer about it in our offices. So a year after I started re being John's researcher, his medical researcher, um, my own daughter was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. My daughter's name is Callista Michael, and she was 21. So. I had had this, I had this complete collapse of the spirit because I had thought that I understood cancer. I had thought that I had parsed the cultural meaning of it, the metaphor, which I considered to be a malignant metaphor, um, and, and had, had tried to see it 
more clearly for what it is, cancer that is. And then of course when my daughter was diagnosed, I lost all perspective on it. I was just, I, I was keening on the floor. I mean, I, I literally cried for, uh, I went into mourning. Um, and it was, a, it was quite a, a disproportionate response because the kind of cancer she had was not fatal, probably. I mean, it would have, if, if we'd never dealt with it ever, it might eventually become fatal, but she has, um, it was not, it had not spread, it was not an aggressive cancer, it's a type of cancer that they believe they can cure. In her case, they did, uh, you know, a couple of operations and then gave her some radioactive iodine to kill off the remaining thyroid cells in her body, and she'll be monitored very heavily for the rest of her life, but her, and her chances of recurrence are pretty good, but even if it recurs, they can deal with it again. So she's, the cancer's not going to kill my daughter. But even so, I had this extreme, uh, you know, terrified response to the fact that my daughter had cancer. In our society at the moment, and this has not always been true, cancer is a is a new uh, uh our, our attitudes towards cancer date back to about the 1950s when marketing campaigns began to try to raise money to combat cancer. So we, we have a different attitude toward cancer today than we have had during most of the time that humans have been on the planet. And um, But what I think, what I reckon it's come to is that we think that cancer is inevitable and preventable and deserved. And those three concepts can't exist together, and yet they do in this very twisted um, understanding of cancer that we've developed over the past, you know, 65 years or so. Um, so I thought I, I began to look at why it is that we think that cancer is everywhere. It's actually called on some of the the fundraising websites that are medically endorsed. It's it's actually called the ultimate terrorist. And you know, if someone dies, it's because our society has failed. We have not raised enough money. We have not put enough medical attention to it. The people who have cancer are cast as people who have done something horribly wrong. And I, I came to think of cancer as this. Uh, you know, a billboard for one's most secret sins. And that's, and that's in some um, types of, not the medical literature so much as the public literature is, is cast in that way. So I think it goes back to how common cancer is. So in North America, in, if, you back, if you go back to the 1900s, cancer was, a, was you know, if you think of the top 10 killers, cancer was in the bottom three um, for, for, for humans. By the time we get to about the middle of the century, so 1950s or so, if we look at cancer, cancer has risen up the list, but it's not right near the top. So what, what, what was killing people before you know, before the middle of the 19th century, before the middle of the 20th century, what was killing people was uh, illness and accident and, um, you know, things that we now have antibiotics for. We didn't have antibiotics until, you know, we didn't have vaccinations until the middle of the, of the 1900s. The thing about cancer is that primarily, primarily, not exclusively, it's a disease of the elderly. And it happens because your cells are around enough and go through enough mutations that, you know, one of them one single cell in the trillions of cells in your body one cell develops you know the the right characteristics to develop into into cancer and that's still primarily very 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 primarily a disease of the elderly i i think i in the book express a wish which is that i wish for us as a society that we could develop more um, nuanced ways of talking about this more um 
sensible and sensitive and accurate ways of talking about this. Because when we're when we're listening to the you know the pink ribbon campaign uh, fundraising slogans and when we're reading the fundraising literature, it's not medical literature. It's an ad campaign, and it's really hard to, to distinguish between those because we all know people who've died of cancer way too soon. It happens, but we also know people who died of heart attacks all you know, way too soon. And we don't think in our society of heart attacks and stroke and high blood pressure as the ultimate terrorist that's going to, you know, crush our way of life. So what's happening here is that the metaphor of cancer is plugging into a deeper fear of our society. It's, it's, so it's not just about cancer, it's about something else. You know, what would it feel like, for example, if we, um, what would it feel like if we talked about cancer as a dance instead of a war? What would that feel like? It would be something different. Because if cancer is a war, then we're fighting it and there are winners and losers and the people who die are always losers. And I can't accept that. I can't accept that everybody who dies of cancer is a loser. Like, I think maybe they're just unlucky. And maybe we haven't got sophisticated enough medicine to actually treat those people yet. Um, it doesn't mean that you know, they didn't want to live or that they somehow failed personally because they got cancer and then died of it. I, I, I just think that's such an inhumane way to look at it. So instead of being, you know, inevitable, preventable and deserved, it's unlucky, random and, you know, unfortunate. Um, my brother-in-law, John, is, uh, he's now well past five years um, since his diagnosis, that was in April. And he is um, in those five years he's had, I think, only one single week of illness, and that was a cold. He's got no recurrence of the, uh, the cancer. He still does his intravenous vitamin C therapies um, with a naturopath every uh, several times a week. So it's, he's he's he he doesn't think of it anymore as a war. I think he thinks of it as. Um, Li you know, living with cancer as coexisting peace peaceably with with his uh, with his melanoma. I don't know. I think maybe he is dancing. I think maybe he is. I mean, he's he's that kind of the thing that was remarkable about John um, was that he just refused to uh, buy into this metaphor. It was I didn't know how instructive his example was going to be until I, you know I had 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 written about this and had and had talked with him so much over the years about his cancer but you know I, I think in the end he just he just um he, t he takes it very very seriously I mean it's a uh he's got a fatal illness you know but he is he's got stuff to do and he's just doing it and he's dealing with this as best he can in the only ways that are available to him that he thinks are appropriate and uh he devotes it's like a part-time job you know for him the treatments he takes and the ways he has to adapt his life to, to deal with this. He's 71 now. Callista uh, had tr very traditional treatment for her her, uh, her thyroid cancer. She, she had two operations and then she was treated with radioactive iodine twice to try to eradicate all of the remaining thyroid cells in her body. And she is um, very closely monitored, but there's no there's no recurrence as far as we know and there's she she was diagnosed so she got cancer when she you know she got diagnosed at 21 so she has a long life in which uh, thyroid cancer cells can recur um, and so it's it's possible 
you know, it may even be likely that they, they recur. But her doctors are tracking it and should be able to, to, um, to treat her again should that ever happen. I, what I came away with was this, was a more, I think a more holistic sense that perhaps faith and science need to somehow dance together in this. Not that you reject um, evidence or not that you reject uh, this, this, this uh, protocol to, um, to make drugs safe and effective and all that kind of stuff, but that when you don't have that option, you have to do what feels right for you. My new, my new book, Malignant Metaphor, is not, is not an attempt to be didactic um, or to tell people what to think about cancer. It's, it's to try to democratize the information that's out there about cancer. So what is it really? What, uh, you know, you know, what um, are other possible ways to think about it? So it's really what I'm trying to do is open up a conversation that people ha are not having yet in our society. That was our conversation with Alana Mitchell. Our interview with her can be found in the October edition of The Observer and at ucobserver.org. Her book, Malignant Metaphor, Finding the Hidden Meaning of Cancer, has just been released by ECW Press. Journalist Erica Lenti recently wrote about late-life depression for The Observer. It's a reality for many Canadian seniors, yet treatment is very hard to come by. Here, Lenti explains how her story, which is entitled Twilight Blues, all came together including the personal difficulties she faced while reporting it. Have a listen. When I first pitched the idea of covering late-life depression, I thought immediately of my grandmother. Oma, as I call her, had been struggling with her own mental health for months at that point. I watched her deny help from professionals and listened to her lament the happier, more fulfilling life she once had. Her experiences served as inspiration to write about a neglected issue, but writing a story so close to home was never part of the original plan. My research for the piece involved countless days of reading as many books as I could on the topic. Of course, there were few. I talked to others who had gone through similar experiences with their own loved ones. I even attended a conference on elderly healthcare. But the more I searched, the more I thought of Oma, and the more I realized I needed to write about the woman I visited every weekend. That realization didn't come easy. The decision to chronicle my grandmother's descent into depression wasn't my own to make. I first discussed it with my mother, Oma's sole caregiver outside of her nursing home. We both knew writing the story meant opening our lives to the entire world, the peace living online forever. But we knew it was a story worth telling. Our fear of being vulnerable to readers was trumped by the importance of shedding light on an issue far too often ignored. So one day, over the phone, Mom and I asked Oma if she would be open to having her story told. After weeks of interviewing others about their experiences with elderly mental health, the request made both my mom and me nervous. I know how difficult a topic it is to broach, and the last thing I wanted was to make my 79-year-old grandmother uncomfortable. But. To my surprise, she was on board immediately. In fact, she sounded excited on the other end of the line. Thank you, she said before we hung up. It's a sentiment she has continued to express each time I bring the story up. And yet, when it came time to write the story, I was stuck. I sat for about a week with all of my research in order. Nothing was holding me back but myself. 
Perhaps it was because I knew Oma's story echoed my own struggle with depression. When she first saw a psychologist at her nursing home, I had already been in therapy for months. I understood so deeply the pain she felt, and that understanding left me fraught with emotion. I couldn't write in my office, and when I did write, I felt drained of energy. I was responsible for showcasing the suffering of not just my grandmother, but of others who I had only just gotten to know. I knew firsthand how frustrating it could be to see a journalist get mental health so, so wrong, and I found it my duty to portray late-life depression as realistically as I could, not only for Oma, but for every reader, those like my mother and me, who could relate. I planned to read the piece to my grandmother by her bedside. After months of researching, interviewing, and writing, I can only hope I've done her story justice. Erica Lenti's story was published in the September edition of The Observer and can be found at ucobserver.org. Her latest feature, about the explosion of the pornography industry and porn addiction in the age of the internet, will be published in our magazine and online in November. You've been listening to The Observer podcast, which can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and at ucobserver.org, where you can also find links to everything we talked about in this episode. Also, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at UC underscore Observer. This podcast was recorded by David Wallen and produced by Kevin Spurgaitis. Music was provided by Poddington Bear through the Free Music Archives. And it's hosted by me, David Wilson. The Observer's print and online editions are put together every month by me, managing editor Jocelyn Bell, senior editor Kaylee Moore, senior writer Mike Mill, art director Ross Wolford, and digital content editor Kevin Spurgaitis. We'd like to acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Periodical Fund of the Department of Canadian Heritage. That's it. We'll be back with another Observer podcast in the coming months. See you next time.